Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam, the podcast that gives you the insight, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Tony Cole. Tony is a veteran within cybersecurity, having served in senior positions at Symantec, McAfee and FireEye over a 30-year career. Tony is now the CTO for Ativo Networks, the award-winning leader in deception for cybersecurity threat detection, as well as serving as a member of the NASA Advisory Council. Hope you enjoy. Beach and Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So, Tony, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you, Carl. I'm happy to be here. So firstly, people call you an industry veteran, uh, and I think that's a little unfair because you don't actually look that old. So, you know, I'm not too sure uh, why people call you that. Because I am old, and uh, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of little grandkids running around. So I guess it's just some, some lucky genes in the hair. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> all right, let's go back to day one then. So where were you born? I'm originally from uh, from Florida, so uh Seventh or eighth generation. I would have to look that up. I think it's eighth generation Floridian. And who are or were your parents? So my mother has moved back to Florida, and uh, my dad is uh, long gone. So uh, back passed away when I was a young teenager. And where did you grow up? Everywhere. So my dad did a, a number, number of different, different jobs. jobs. I lived in Florida, Vermont. Uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, California for a while, uh, pretty much all over the U.S. as a kid. What was your education like? Uh, hectic. You know, it's, uh, it's really funny when you go to so many different schools, uh, you know, you start to develop a very outgoing personality so that you could make friends before you, you know, moved off and went to another school. I uh, had a couple years where I didn't even finish the year and we'd moved to another school. So I didn't even finish one year in that school before I was off at another one. So you kind of develop an outgoing personality so that you could meet people pretty quickly. But uh, it, was, uh, it was just interesting. I, I really disliked it for many years and then realized that the personality I have today that I do appreciate, uh, I like myself and I think it, it helped develop who I am today by moving around so much. So even though it's just kind of weird, you know, somebody has a reunion, like where I graduated from high school, I didn't even do a full year in that high school, so it'd be kind of weird to go back to it, so I never have. <laughs> now, the, the most interesting question I have, I think, for someone like you is, when was the first time you actually heard about cybersecurity? So that's a really good question, Carl. I don't, I'm trying to remember. I would think... I was in cybersecurity long before it was an industry because when I joined the military, uh, you know, I went into cryptography. So, but you know, at the time we looked at you know confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and we were only looking at you know the confidentiality piece, you know, the encrypting of data. 
So we weren't looking at the other pieces at that point in time. So I would say probably the first time I heard the term was, you know, uh, early 2000s, but I was already, you know, deep in the industry at that point in time, or deep in the, in the practice, I should say. I wasn't in the industry. I was still in the military at that time. And what does it now mean to you as an industry? Well, you know, it's funny, you know, you're asking me about, you know, when I first started in this, but I try to remind people that, you know, when you look at the world of, of connected IP addressable devices, we're in its infancy today. And when you look at, you know, cybersecurity trying to defend it, you know, it's even a younger baby, you know. So uh, I think we still have a tremendous amount of way, a distance to go you know, to make this into a real industry that's uh, providing great value back to those that are trying to actually defend, you know, uh, quite frankly, their data, not their enterprise, because that, that perimeter is disappearing. So, so I think it's, it's much better than it was 10 years ago, but we still have a tremendous amount of work to do to build this as an industry, professionalize people, make sure, you know, everyone understands, you know, based on certifications you have and skill sets you have, you know, where you can provide value in an organization. And that's where we still have a lot of work to do. I agree with that. Now, over a 16-year period, you worked at Symantec, McAfee, FireEye, you know, household names. Talk us through some of your positions there uh, and the experiences that you had at, at some of the biggest companies within cybersecurity. Well, when I retired, I, I wanted to step away from DOD, the Department, U.S. Department of Defense. I'd seen way too many friends jump into an integrator, you know, systems integrator. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, they do, you know, 20 years, 25 years in the military, they go to a systems integrator, and then they actually stay in a, in a like-minded role until they retire. And uh, I wanted to do something different. So as I looked at the opportunities that I had, I went to a small startup called Recourse Technologies. And I was only there for about uh, six months when uh, Semantic acquired that company. So and they asked me to come in and, and do program management, business development. So which for me was great because I wanted to learn more and more about the business side. And I did that for a few years. Uh, I think probably two, two and a half years I was in that role at Semantic. Uh, and before that, of course, six, six and a half months. And as I went through that, I realized that I missed my operational roots. And that's when I decided I was going to leave Semantic and they convinced me to stay and uh, take over and build their, uh, their government practice, so for consulting, so allowing me to, to start working on the operational things that I had in the past. Perfect. And then you went to McAfee, and how did, you, how did you firstly get into them as an organization, and how did your career then pave out, I suppose, to get you to where you are today? It's really interesting. I was at, uh, at Semantic, and I was running that uh, government practice for, for a number of years. And um, the guys at McAfee had been trying to convince me to come over and build the same thing for them. And uh, they, they finally sent uh, Dave DeWalt after me, who was the CEO of McAfee at the time, convinced me to leave Semantic and, and join McAfee and build out their global government consulting practice, So, which was a lot of fun at that point in time. You know, uh, Semantic had bought... Uh, Veritas, which was a, uh, a storage and backup company, and were less focused on the security side. And I'd been a security guy since starting in cryptography in the early 80s. So I really wanted to, to focus, refocus on cybersecurity. So I joined McAfee, went over as an executive there and took over their 
global government consulting practice and built that up and had a phenomenal team over there. And we had a tremendous amount of fun for about uh, four years where we built that out. We're delivering uh, consulting to governments uh, across the globe, some critical infrastructure as well, and uh, helping them with architecture and assessments and uh, a number of different things in our industry, which uh, just made it fun helping them build better security posture. But uh, after they were sold to Intel, you know, then uh, the focus started to change a little bit and uh, the company uh, had shifted a little bit. And when uh, I got a call from uh, Dave DeWalton, who was the CEO of FireEye, uh, I jumped ship and went over to FireEye after four years at McAfee to become their global government chief technology officer, which was great fun as well and allowed me to step away from services, which is what I wanted to do at the time. It was a lot of years doing services, running a, a big P&L, which is uh, a little wearing on you after a while. <laughs> no, I agree with that, I'm sure. So I think majority of people will probably know you for your, you know, your five years of service at FireEye, um, you know, in that CTO position. You obviously liked working under Dave. Um, that was obviously the clear thing that we just got from what you just said. But what else stands out for you in terms of your role and the project that you had there? It was a lot of fun because, uh, you know, my time at FireEye, I, I spent uh, a good percentage of it externally focused, helping, you know, customers and organizations understand their risk, understand the threat and what they should be doing to secure their environment. But I also took that knowledge back to FireEye internally to help improve products and services to provide those capabilities back to those same customers and our other customers around the globe. So it made it a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, doing a lot of keynotes around the globe. Uh, I think the only continent I've never been on is Antarctica. <laughs> so that's, that's a plus and a minus. That's a lot of traveling. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of traveling. That's one of the things that burned me out there. But I will tell you, uh, I really enjoyed working at FireEye. You know, they have uh, one of the best services and threat intelligence teams so on the planet. And uh, Kevin Mandy, a great guy, brilliant visionary. So was when he took over as CEO, so it was a lot of fun working for him. Um, they really are a good company. So, it would, and it was nice when I decided I was going to leave and do something different that uh, I was not going to a competitor. So it was a, a polite, you know, thanks and we'll see you around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what did what was the main things FireEye really taught you as a person, but also um, about where your career was heading? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Carl. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, FireEye helped me peel back the layers and provide more of an adversary focus on defending our, our data. So wherever that data is in transit or at rest. You know, in the past, many of the companies I've worked for, it was always about, you know, there was, there was some threat intelligence pieces and some analysis, but it was generally about build a new detection for a product to protect that customer. And FireEye helped open my eyes, the Mandiant team, especially there, that service aside, to look at this from an adversary perspective, that, you know, it's a, not a piece of malware coming into your environment. It's an adversary sitting out there. And just like we do in the physical realm, you know, when we're trying to defend something, understand what the risk is and understand that adversary and what they're targeting. So, and that can help you actually provide a much, much better defense. 
So I really appreciated that. It helped me tremendously rethink, you know, and learn and uh, grow as not only as an expert in this field, but also as a leader. So uh, I didn't have a large team at FireEye, and it worked very, very well because the team is run very well, and it's very, very well matrixed where, you know, I'd say, hey, I need help to any one of the teams, and they would always jump in. Okay, let's jump forward to the modern day. Um, you are now working at Ativo Networks. So tell us about, firstly, why you went there, and secondly, what they offer, which is which attracted you to work there. It's really interesting. Uh, you know, we started this conversation off that uh, I'm a little, getting a little long in the tooth. <laughs> I've been around the block for a while. <laughs> And um, before I retire, you know, I, I remember back fondly to uh, to Recourse Technologies, and I really enjoyed being at a startup. FireEye, when I joined them, was also a startup uh, and went through the IPO there. But uh, I wanted to go back to a to a smaller organization and really have some fun where I could put my own, you know, stamp on it. So and and help shape and mold the company and grow it. So. And as I started uh, thinking about what I wanted to do next, I'd done almost five years at FireEye and wanted to, to find some innovative uh, new startup doing something that's totally different than what you're seeing in the market. So I started looking around and talking to some VC friends and, you know, ended up pointed at uh, Ativo Networks, you know, doing cyber deception. And uh, after a couple of meetings with uh, the CEO and the board, decided that uh, it would be a good fit, and they decided the same thing. And I joined the company as uh, chief technology officer in uh, March of last year, so helping run strategy and vision across the company, which is just tremendous fun. And how have you impacted, you know, the strategy and the, and I suppose, the, the wider community um, from Ativo Networks? Well, I think that uh, I, I bring somewhat you know, of a unique perspective based on all the travel I've done around the globe. I've spent a tremendous amount of time in front of uh, security experts uh, from, you know, all walks of life, uh, all different countries, uh, government, military, critical infrastructure. And I think many of those conversations have helped shape, you know, my thinking around trying to drive the company that I'm now part of in a specific direction. So, uh, making sure they understand that uh, we need to understand the adversary and we need to even the playing field. And that's been tremendous fun because this company was already well on its way, doing a great job. And the one reason that I really joined them was talking to people using the technology that kept telling me that, yeah, they're very different. They come at it from a completely different angle than most of the legacy security companies. So that was, that was great fun for me. And quite frankly, I was looking for something really exciting to do. Five years at FireEye, walking around and, and uh, stepping on stages and talking to customers was tremendous fun, but it was also a, a little wearing at the end with all of that travel and um, kind of felt like I was repeating myself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you, I suppose when people look through your profile, they see, um, and we've had many conversations about it, the, the word fret, uh, you know, repeated across many of your previous positions. Is that an area that excites you? Is that why you went into that area? It is. It is. You know, um, if you look back from my military time, I mean, we were always trying to counter threats. And you jump into, you know, uh, into the cybersecurity space. Everything we do is about threats to our, our data sets. So 
you know, uh, cyber is just one more component of risk is all it is. So, and, uh, but it gives us the opportunity, you know, to look specifically at the adversaries and what they're trying to actually accomplish and then how we can counter that. So to me, it's, a, it's tremendously exciting and a lot of fun. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, I, I, you know, uh, I was asked to, to run for the ISC Squared Board of Directors, uh, I guess, 2017, yeah, 2017. And uh, ran for election, was elected, you know, representing 140,000 members around the globe of the profession. And uh, I do it simply because I'm trying to get everyone on the same sheet of music. So uh, thinking from that threat perspective, so to our environments versus actually, you know, building a strong security posture, which we just know doesn't work. And you and many others use the word ad adversary when you talk about this type of work and you've used it actually in this conversation. So can you expand on what that means to people that don't know? Yeah, you know, when, when you look at it across the board, many people today in a lot of organizations and, and the larger ones are getting better at it, uh, at understanding the risk to their environment. But uh, the SMB, you know, the small, medium-sized business and even some of the, the smaller, large enterprises still don't think about it from an adversary perspective. The fact that, you know, there's a nation state or a organized criminal group or hacktivist, but an individual sitting there that has decided to target you. So there's something in your environment they want to steal, be it, you know, uh, PII information, you know, be it uh, um, something they can uh, turn into you know, uh, something they can monetize, some type of financial information, so health information. Uh, so I think it's, it's really interesting to try and shape somebody's thinking to start considering the fact that it's an adversary and there's a reason they're trying to actually compromise your systems. When you look at some of the big healthcare companies that have been breached, many of them, if you talk to them, you know, four or five years ago, they'd look right at you and say, well, we don't think we have anything here outside of the PII that, uh, you know, an adversary would want. And now they've all found they're wrong. So, so we have to get people starting to think about the fact that somebody is at that keyboard, they picked your organization, they're trying to breach, and they're targeting some type of assets inside that organization. So an adversary focus can help us actually rebuild our security so to ensure that uh, even if they get in, they're not successful because we're focused on those high-value assets. So that's the adversary perspective to me. And within the threat space, where does intelligence link into this for you? Well, that intelligence piece is all about that adversary. When you look, you know, well, most people today, when you say threat intelligence, uh, a lot of people will think just indicators of compromise. You know, what's a, a hash for a, uh, for a file or an MD5 or, you know, some other small uh, tactical small item. What I like to think about instead is threat information that actually provides a wealth of information on the um, TTPs, uh, you know, the, the tools, tactics, and, and procedures that somebody's using to break into your system. So let me put it this way. When you take those indicators of compromise and you add in the tool sets that you find and you're doing incident response on something, you can start to build a profile of who that adversary is and understand that, all right, here's the guy who's part of a nation-state threat sitting in this nation. So who uses, you know, these type of remote access tools, they build these type of uh, libraries 
So inside so these directories inside that system, they drop these files in there. So uh, here's the type of code they use. Here are the additional uh, you know, uh, libraries they use. There's a whole bunch of information you can put together to start to provide a picture. So then when you start to find those inside another environment or another compromised system, now you just start to understand, here's that adversary that I've got information on. Now I know he's after this asset and he's after this asset. And then when I move off to the next organization, I actually can take that big picture that I've got now of all these different adversaries and I can start to understand what they're after in the environment because I can recognize them based on those pieces I've put together, you know, building out a puzzle on who that person is. So would you um, lead with more uh, intelligence around this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's critically important that any tool set somebody brings into their environment today looks at it from that perspective, from the adversary perspective, and starts to actually integrate that threat intelligence into everything they do. So how do you take you know, all these little pieces of data you know, from a breach that happens or an attempted breach and put that into some type of structure so you can do analysis on it, you know, whether it's you know, doing uh, you know, some type of big data, so uh, doing analysis on that, AI down the line, not today, it doesn't, doesn't really exist like people talk about, uh, not in our field yet. So, But nevertheless, getting all of those pieces and tying that into every product that you have. So for instance, you know, in deception where I sit today, you should be able to extract that intelligence and dump it into other products to make those products smarter so they're doing their jobs better. And every product you bring into the environment should do that. If there's data, it should be extracted and shared with the other pieces of technology to protect the data sets. Another thing you mentioned earlier in our conversation was around um, prevention approach. And so tell me, why is it important for companies to move away from just a simple prevention approach? Yeah, you know, it's a tremendous amount of money that's been spent on prevention. And some of the largest companies out there around the globe have spent a lot on prevention. So literally in the billions and have been completely compliant in regulated industries and still breached. So I think people need to understand today that we need to balance that equation and spend on detection because the adversary is going to get in So and, uh, and start to identify those breaches much more quickly. If you look on my last company, you know, a FireEye, their Mandiant M-Trends report still says about, and most other companies are saying about the same, but 100, 101 days of dwell time from when an adversary gets into a system before they're identified in the system. Well, CrowdStrike just came out with a report saying on average about four and a half hours it takes you know, across the board before they've moved laterally. So we really need to actually build a structure now for detection. We know the breach is gonna happen. How do we detect them quickly so the adversary does not actually uh, uh, achieve their goal? So and by doing that, you know, then we can actually start to balance this equation out. Today, it's, it's a lot spent on prevention. We're not stopping the breaches, and the adversaries are walking out with whatever they came to steal. And Carl, the other piece I think that's critically important here is uh, they're not showing us their best tools. You know, if I show up at your house and I want to break in, and I know you've got you know, your money sitting in a desk drawer, right? I'm not going to bring a safe cracker. I don't need them. So it's the same thing in the cyber realm. You know, we don't see the adversary's best tools because the vast majority of the time, they don't need them, and they're going to save them you know, for, uh, for when they do need them.
So, and I think that's that's something a lot of people don't think about that uh, nation states and even organized crime today are not using their their best capabilities because they don't need to. What about an active cyber defense then? Yeah, I, you know, first I, I like to define active cyber defense because we see too many reporters out there. You know, you say active cyber defense and they start automatically talking about hacking back. And if you look, most pundits in the industry do not include hacking back as part of active cyber defense. And I'm along that same line as well. Active cyber defense is you know, going through and, and utilizing deception in the environment, changing the playing field up so the adversary doesn't know what's real and what isn't real, using orchestration and automated response. So it's really tying together all facets of your environment inside, right back to your previous question around detection, so that you can quickly respond and detect the breaches when they happen versus being you know, uh, more focused on the preventative side and just waiting for one of your devices to say, hey, something happened, or worse yet, you know, uh, uh, FBI or some other law enforcement agency call you up and say, hey, we found your data out here, so in the underground, and uh, you've been breached, and it happened two years ago. So that unfortunately happens a lot. That's why you know, an active cyber defense is important, changing things up on the playing field and getting people to remember that you know, that's your enterprise. You own it. Change that thing up. Make the adversary work much more uh, to actually accomplish their goals. Or better yet, make it difficult enough where they actually go after somebody else instead. Now, I'm sure I know what your answer is going to be, but the number of people, I suppose, will look at this or listen to this and go, uh, well, it won't ever happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Um, yeah, so, you know... That's a major issue, you know, because you do hear that still. It's not going to happen to me. It's the same person, you know, uh, that's probably not the best way to equate it, but I'm going to anyway, uh, that thinks, you know, oh, you know, I'm just going to have one more glass of wine. I'm not going to get pulled over. I'm going to be absolutely fine. So just a bad idea, you know, uh, in the cybersecurity realm, you know, it's been proven over and over and over. It will happen to you. And for those who think it won't, it likely already has happened and you simply haven't been able to detect it because you've been focused on the preventative side. So when you look at industries, it's everybody in critical infrastructure and the pieces that touch that critical infrastructure. And by that, I mean, you know, you look at third party trust, you know, uh, for here's a little company that supports a medium company that actually supports a massive retailer. So, or pick another one and there's trust levels because all of them are contractors across the board. So, and you've got to go down to that level. If you look at the defense side, you know, there are subcontractor to subcontractor to subcontractor for the building, you know, submarines and boats and ships and stuff. So it's really important for people to think about those relationships and how someone can get into their environment based on those trust levels. So even though we want to focus on critical infrastructure at the large level, we have to think about all of the relationships down to the lowest level. I suppose listening to this conversation and, and talking to you so much about this, how can companies counter, you know, how else can they counter these evolving threats? Well, I think they need to take the adversary perspective. They need to actually build out their enterprise in a, um, a balanced detection versus prevention mode. They need to understand their environment. That's critically important. So they know 
you know, uh, where their high value assets are. They need to understand the business, how it relates to the business. Uh, I'm just shocked how many times we turn on technology and, and, you know, we, Hey, you know, this VLAN wasn't in your, uh, wasn't listed in your architecture. Where did that come from? <laughs> so it's really important that people understand, you know, their environment and the business as well. So to sit there in one organization, so uh, and thinking that you're doing a good job just preventing every every bad guy from coming in, you know, isn't realistic in this day and age. You've got to understand your business thoroughly, work hand in hand with the business, be an enabler to the business. Don't be, you know, uh, the security team of of no all the time. And we still have a lot of those around the globe, but work with them so that you can actually build out. If you build a partnership with them, they're going to share with you what the high value assets are. And you'll start to understand, all right, if this disappears inside this organization, that's a catastrophe for this company. So how do I actually build proper defenses around it? And how do I build a detection methodology around it? So we know immediately when there's some anomalous activity. So I think that's that's probably the most important thing for them to think about is understanding the business and then relating the security protections to it. And there's something that you and I have spoke about a lot is the increased spending on cybersecurity. And as it is a cost center, often it sounds great for recruitment companies or headhunters like myself um, when, when you're talking about that a company needs this or it needs that. Um, how do you deal with companies that might want your services but can't afford it? Or how do you... Um, how do you advise companies um, to either increase spend um, and have to convince the C-suite in order to get that? Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that one up. Uh, I've had a number of C-suites bring me in to brief the board, so to help them understand the threat. You know, it's, uh, it's 2019. Uh, one of my favorite websites, and you heard this before, Carl, is information is beautiful, and you can go look at the uh, data breaches by, by record by a number of different ways, but it builds up, uh, it was since 2004, and I think it's now 2008 to 2019, and it's just astounding all the breaches that have taken place. So my point is simply that when you have that conversation with the board and you walk them through the threat level in all the variety of industries that have been breached, and then you start to explain to them how this problem has only just begun, they really start to get it. Just add in, you know, uh, uh, the was it 2018 750 billion dollars spent on IOT around the globe uh, add in right now we've got 5g rolling out in about nine different countries so as quickly as possible then add in that a whole bunch of these companies want to build really cheap inexpensive 5g chips and put them in IOT devices so there'll be no perimeter anymore tie those into the enterprise side and bam we've got a brand new problem and I haven't even talked about AI or even advanced machine learning so it's going to get much worse. And if you can explain that adequately to them, typically the spend goes up for cybersecurity, especially the expertise needed, you know, in conjunction with all of that to actually uh, be successful in, in defending the enterprise. Hmm. Another, another term that I, I know you use, especially at Ativo, is uh, deception. Um, and it's uh, a term I suppose people will know different meanings for, but what does it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, if you look at deception, it is literally taking back home field advantage on the enterprises that we own and should 
being an emphasis on should be in control of. You know, when you go out to uh, uh, to a, a football field, and we'll use it in the, in the British reference or the rest of the world reference, not the U.S. reference, doesn't really matter. But uh, <laughs> when it, a team is out there on the field, you know, they're trying to deceive the other team. They don't share game plans. Somebody goes down and is actually trying to kick the uh, the ball into the goal. You know, they're trying to fool the goalie. I'm looking this way. I'm looking that way. But I'm actually going to kick it over there. It's all about deception. And that's what we're trying to bring to the cyber realm to everybody is actually changing up the enterprise. So when an adversary comes in, they don't know what's real and what isn't real. And the great thing is when you've got a deceptive fabric across the entire enterprise, anything they touch in the deceptive layer will cause an alert. And suddenly you detect them inside your environment shrinking that dwell time down dramatically. And that's the big piece. So they've broken into your house, but they weren't able to steal anything because you caught them immediately. So you're not part of that 101 days of dwell time. Instead, you know, you've got them in 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour or a day. But as long as you've stopped them from achieving their goal and moving laterally, it's a win. And where does that fit in in terms of the cybersecurity structure? Uh, it fits across the entire enterprise. That's what makes it fun. So it, uh, you know, deception layers in across production environments with, you know, uh, breadcrumbs, lures, and decoys that will actually take an adversary when they look at those. You know, when I'll give you an example. Somebody sends an email to one of your users. You've trained them once a year like you're supposed to. Just really be doing it quarterly and make it engaging so they actually start to learn versus once a year. But most do it once a year, and uh, they forget. They get an enticing email that comes in, they click on the link. So, and uh, lo and behold, that endpoint is infected. So now you have an adversary sitting on that system inside the wire that managed to evade your perimeter defenses. So when that adversary goes in, one of the first things they'd likely do is go scrape memory. So inside memory should be planted deceptive credentials or other types of credentials that will lead them off to another system that's deceptive in nature. So meaning that, uh, you know, they haven't gone to your production assets to the server they thought they were going to. Instead, they've gone to a deceptive server that looks exactly like yours because it's a replica of yours, but in a deceptive environment that alerts you immediately and traps them in that environment. So it's really, it's a structure to change up the entire enterprise. So anyone who's not a valid user, who's exploring things they shouldn't, be it a malicious insider or somebody who's broken in, doesn't matter. As soon as they start exploring and doing things they shouldn't do, they're going to get caught. That's what makes it so fun because it just integrates into the entire fabric of the enterprise. With every aspect of this that you spoke about, how, how does regulations and compliance fit in to that? Well, it, uh, it depends on which vertical you're talking about. You know, uh, we work pretty diligently to map to, you know, um, the NIST cybersecurity framework, MITRE's attack framework that they have, uh, ISO 27002, you know, so it, it kind of fits into each different type of enterprise. Uh, for those that are more highly regulated, it really doesn't change anything up. So it just provides additional security controls in the environment that you can document against and actually help, you know, uh, drive a, a better checklist on the audit. So, but the important thing is, even though it can help you on that checklist, let's remember as well that there's a lot of organizations that have gone through and uh, done very well on an audit for PCI and others and still been breached. So this is a component to not only help you comply with that audit, 
but also in reality stop the bad guys from actually getting anything. One of the proudest things for our team constantly is catching red teams that uh, are testing the environment and we catch them because they can't tell what's real and what isn't. Back to that deception piece. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, it, it is a lot of fun. It's one of the reasons <laughs> that I came over here. So how does this relate to you know government and nation states? Because I know we've spoken a lot about that in the past in terms of the risks that they face. How does this, in terms of deception, in terms of uh, threats and intelligence, how does that relate to them in terms of improving what they can do? Well, if you if you look at you know what nation states are doing today, so people are outraged and well you know whatever. So I'll tell you quite frankly, espionage has been done since you know since we started to form tribes, right? So across the planet, there's been some type of espionage. When we started connecting the internet together, nation states were watching and uh, and said to each other, "Wow, look, you know, hey, now I can actually uh, go and attack this other country that." by the way, would have been ridiculously expensive if I had done it in the physical realm. But now it's uh, the Internet makes it more asymmetric where I can actually buy some systems, uh, buy and train, buy expertise or train up folks to actually go do attacks on other nations and steal stuff without actually even putting my people in, uh, in harm's way because I'm doing it remotely. So, so my point is this has been done for many, many decades. And part of that, of course, was counterintelligence and deception, you know, as they moved to the, from the physical to the cyber realm, was brought on board too. So we're just finally now taking that to the enterprise side in a scalable, extensible framework, you know, where we can catch one nation state attacking another nation state. We like to, to say we're, we're like Switzerland. We're just neutral. We just want to actually protect data. <laughs> now, talking about governments, you uh, are an advisor for NASA. So how does that type of role come about and what does it involve, if you can tell me that much about it? I can. It's, it's completely independent from what I do on a, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they had asked me to come up and be part of their institutional committee uh, initially as a member at large, and I was advising them on cybersecurity. And it's a special uh, SGE, special government employee, so I'm literally a government employee when I step into NASA, you know, for uh, uh, four or five times each year. So it's just advising them on different things. And as, uh, as that institution or subcommittee went away, NASA asked me to step up and become part of the advisory council to the NASA administrator. So I advise them as a member at large across everything NASA does with, of course, uh, you know, the reason I'm there, though, is the expertise they brought me in for for the cybersecurity environment. That is... Uh, well, a geek's dream. <laughs> so it's just a trem- tremendous amount of fun to sit there and listen to uh, all of these brilliant individuals, you know, trying to do something great for humanity and, and build a structure to commercialize low Earth orbit, you know, take us off to, to the moon and build a base potentially on the moon and maybe even a base on, on Mars down the line. So and for me, it certainly stretches my thinking about, you know, what would somebody try to do to that environment? You know, uh, what should I recommend to protect that environment, you know, and, and try to assist them in any fashion I can. So because it's, it's just one of the coolest missions in the world. So uh, and hopefully out of this world <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> now, I'm intrigued because you've had a lot of different experiences. So talk me for a project or a time, you know, one of your previous organizations that really like challenged you and brought you out your comfort zone. 
Yeah, I will tell you, you know, uh, probably the most challenging one I, I, I ever had was uh, I was running security in the, in the Pentagon on the backbone, and I had all of the responsibility and none of the authority over any of the uh, organizations running on the backbone. So I had to try to stop all the breaches from taking place, but quite often I was not allowed to put blocks in for specific organizations that I knew were targeted. So it was a, a eye-opening <laughs> experience, you know, <laughs> where, where sometimes I would I would do things where I would get myself in a little bit of trouble because I would ratchet things down until somebody squealed. So and then unratchet it if I had to. So and then uh, take the the brunt of uh, of the beatings, you know, when there was a breach because of it. So so it was a good experience, you know. Believe it or not, it was it was a really good experience. Uh, obviously, it was well tainted at the end by 9/11 uh, because we had a tremendous amount of work and lost some lives from that uh, to rebuild the networks after that. But also uh, a good learning experience for me on how to you know work through a, a major disaster and bring systems back up online and look for redundancies and and really start to understand disaster recovery and business continuity in a whole new fashion because we went through it. So and once we had things running, then we were still looking for. Where do we have, you know, uh, single dependencies that we needed to actually fix? I suppose talking about that, and you know, I never planned this, come into this, but how quickly was you able to get everything back operational? Uh, it was probably, you know, and when you think about it, I, I'm talking about it from my perspective because. Uh, Pentagon's a massive building with like 27,000 people in it. Yeah, but from my perspective, we were probably, portions of us were down for uh, 12 weeks maybe or so, somewhere in that range. So, and it was a big environment, but, you know, we had workarounds and stuff. And some of it still I can't talk about today, but nevertheless uh, uh, made some lifelong friends. And, and that's one of the things, too, that uh, taught me very quickly that uh, – you know, vendors were people too and, and extremely helpful. You know, here's a company that shows up, you know, uh, and we lost some of our phone services, obviously. And, you know, they're just showing up with boxes of very nice and very expensive radios, you know, not trying to, and, uh, you know, waiting for a purchase order or a receipt for these, just handing us radios. Here you go. Here you go. Use these. So, and, and lots of, lots of uh, efforts from, you know, the vendor community and the community at large. So I always remember going home. Uh, that night stuck in traffic and I was literally four, five hours in traffic. So just sitting there and people were just walking up and down the streets. So bringing food out, drinks out to everybody. So this was, it was a wonderful day to see how kind other people were, you know, to everybody else. So and I'll tell you, uh, one of the craziest things and still gets me choked up today is when it happened and they marched us all out of the Pentagon. Right. And I mean, literally the whole building's evacuating. And there's DiLorenzo Clinic, and here's all these young men and women, you know, that are dentists and, you know, doctors and aides and therapists, and they're all trotting into the building. They're, you know, the rest of us are military, too, and we're evacuating. And they're all sitting there, you know, poof, running into the building that's on fire, just hit by a plane. So it, it makes you really love the military, the dedication of people in the military around the globe. So still today I have that, and I think I always will. Amazing. You you talked about the Pentagon and we've talked about where you are today. So I know a number of people struggle with this, but how did you find the transition from that federal environment to the commercial 
sector? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, I've, I've mentored a lot of people, you know, uh, some very senior officers, uh, down to some young junior folks. And I will tell you that uh, everybody has reservations and concerns when they uh, retire or leave the military, especially, you know, the younger they were when they came in. So the more they have reservations when they leave, because it's the comfort level that they have, be it somebody that enlisted at a young age or somebody that went to college or even one of the academies and then went straight in from there. It's all they know. So, so to them, that's why I think the system integrators are so successful, you know, uh, in recruiting those folks because that's what they know. You know, they know they can. They were working, for instance, the Pentagon. We were just talking about. You can leave the Pentagon and you can go work for this company and you can sit right down at another desk in another part of the Pentagon. So, and they know it's a long-term contract and, and that's that comfort level. But doing something different, you know, most of them coming out of the military are risk-averse, and it takes people mentoring them in industry, helping them to understand that, you know, their skills are needed, they're transferable, so, and they can have another great career after they leave the military. I had some good mentors that helped me and uh, get past that risk aversion, help my uh, my wife understand, you know, uh, that uh, it shouldn't be as scary as we thought it was. And I jumped right out of that into Silicon Valley company and, and really glad that I did because I wanted new experiences and not to be doing the same type of things I was doing in the past. I think that I've kind of led my career that way. And so I've tried to help a lot of other people. So when they ask, you know, to understand that as well and do something different. Now, the one thing that uh, attracted, you know, me to you in terms of, you know, us meeting ne nearly a year ago now um, was how well connected you firstly are and how well respected you are in the industry. How did you get to that point today for anyone that's looking to repeat that? Be nice to people, be sincere, and always speak your mind. You know, um, you know I, I think that's really important, you know, that uh, especially in, the, in the, the world that we're in today on social media where people seem to jump on social media and remove a filter. You know, you, you can tell somebody they're wrong without calling them names. And I mean, I think that's part of the challenge that, uh, that exists today. So, and I've just tried always to, to live my life that way. I'm going to be honest and upfront, so transparent, but I'm also going to try to be polite. So, and I think one of the most important things is I, I you know, want to help people and I want to make our industry better. And I think people kind of sense that. And it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I've, I've met so many people in the industry because I've met a lot of people like me that same thing. They just want to make the world a better place. And I think if everybody did that, you know, then it would be a better place. So in our industry, we'll be better. But it's being active in social media. When people ask you for assistance, you know, stepping in and seeing what you can do. Uh, and it's stepping out of your comfort zone. That's probably one of the most important things. You know, if you don't like to speak publicly, well, guess what? You know, uh, uh, join a club, go speak publicly. So, uh, and, and start doing things that take you out of your comfort zone and it makes your comfort zone much wider than it was. So Army helped me in that. So meet people. I told you about my, my past when I was a kid and how I grew a personality where I became uh, very quick to, to start talking to people that I didn't know. Then the military, when I was a young man, dropped me into Panama. So on a, what they call a temporary duty for like four months, didn't speak any Spanish, and I arrive at the airport and have to make my way to a hotel, and then have to wait, make my way to a uh, 
a uh, military outpost. <laughs> so on a daily basis. So, <laughs> so as a very young man. So, and I think that, uh, but those type of experiences help mold us, you know, and, and give us the opportunity to realize that uh, meeting people is a good thing. And uh, I think those travels and those type of experiences help us actually try to see things from other people's perspectives. And that's my last point I'll make on this one. I think it's very important is, you know, uh, try to actually understand somebody else's viewpoint before you respond to anything. And uh, it, you build a lot of friends that way. So it's okay to disagree. So, but try to understand their perspective. And I think that's, uh, that helped me grow my network quite a bit. What advice would you give people looking to get into cybersecurity? Wow. You know, today, uh, you're a lucky person if you want to jump into cybersecurity. So because there are so many opportunities uh, where you're sitting today in the UK, there's uh, some great programs there on the cyber education side for schools. In the US, there's about, uh, I think it's 11 different states that I know of that have programs. Uh, lots of community colleges jumping into it. And yay, you know, there are tons and tons and tons of free courses out there now, too, where you can learn to program and you can learn about cybersecurity. Cyberary is one, a startup doing some really cool things. SANS Institute has some cool things. Uh, I'm on ISC Squared's board. They have some really cool free things to teach people about cybersecurity and do a lot with schools. And uh, they run a nonprofit called the Center for Cybersecurity and Safety. So there's a lot of different things that people can do now for free to actually uh, learn how to code. And uh, if, they're, if they're just starting out, you know, they should take their kids, even if you can't afford a computer and somehow still get to hear this podcast, you know, go to the library. Most libraries today have computers. You can sit down and, and take these courses after free too. So there's a lot of different ways to get into it. And there's a lot of contract work you can do as well as a young person to actually start getting up to speed where, you know, you can start to build up the requisite skills. Uh, one last thing I'll add to that, around the globe, there are more and more countries now that are actually doing scholarships, so for service back in cybersecurity. The U.S. has it, the U.K. has it, and others do as well, where you can actually, you know, uh, go to college. And I think some of them starting as a sophomore, some as a junior, but they'll start to pick up your tuition, and then you owe years back of service as a civil servant. So, which is also a great experience because you're actually getting some operational experience in an intern-like role while you're going to college for, uh, you know, for some cybersecurity major. So it's a pretty cool structure today. So lots of opportunities. I learned it the hard way through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with the uh, with your overriding point of there's plenty of opportunity there. It's uh, just about what you did, really, you know, like learning, uh, I suppose, on the job partly as well, um, and, and, and also just being connected like, you know, giving back, like you said, um, and making sure that you're connecting out there and social media has really given people a platform to do that. Yeah, you know, they, they take these courses and you can buy Raspberry Pis now. You can build a little self-contained network and there's guides on YouTube and all over the place and then start breaking things. Just make sure it's self-contained, follow the guidelines on it, and uh, you'll learn a tremendous amount, you know, because uh, when you break things, then uh, you should be trying to figure out how to put them back together again and then defend them. So uh, I think there's ample opportunity for any young person that wants to jump into cybersecurity today. And it's a great field So uh, because, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any future end in sight to the threat. Unfortunately, and uh, probably fortunately for you and I, slightly. Uh, not, <laughs> yes. Um, now, I really wanted to test you, Tony. Um, so 
I have 10 quickfire questions. Are you ready for this? Sure. Perfect. What turns you on professionally? A challenge. What turns you off professionally? Uh, the same, same ho-hum thing I've seen repeatedly. Oh, I'm not a target. How do you unwind? Grandkids. Best thing in the world in hockey games with them. Whether they're playing or, or we're watching, uh, you, you know, know the Washington Capitals play. Either way, grandkids and my family, my wife, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> what, what profession other than your own would you like to try? Oh, gosh, uh, that's an easy one for me. Yeah, if I, if I was a younger man or if the uh, medicine gets better, better uh, I would be an astronaut. So coolest thing in the world. You can't get into cybersecurity become an astronaut. <laughs> I'm laughing, you know, of course, Carl, because, because that's backwards. Becoming an astronaut is a lot harder than cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> what activity gives you the most energy? Uh, it's probably a challenge. Back to the same thing when I see a, a, a big some type of big cybersecurity challenge, learning about an adversary. So uh, in the professional realm and then in the uh, personal realm, it's, you know, uh, it's out uh, biking. So, Who is your biggest inspiration? Wow, that's a tough one. So because there's been a tremendous amount. Uh, Turing. Einstein. A uh, couple of colonels that I worked for in the past. So Hal Stevens and uh, and uh, I can't even remember his first name. I haven't talked to him in, in forever. I don't know if he's still with us, but uh, a guy named uh, Colonel Plimpton. So uh, both phenomenal guys, great sense of humor, and knew how to take the stress out of a very stressful moment. So it taught me a lot. Just quickly on that question, what is an inspiration to you? Why Why do these people you know, matter to you? Uh, I, I will tell you, you know, because they enabled me and got out of the way. So, you know, uh, when I was at the Army CERT and I would uh, come walking in and the uh, INSCOM commander would be sitting at my desk and say, hey, what happened overnight, Cole? And clearly, it's five in the morning and I just got there and I don't know yet. But uh, in a lot of environments, you know, uh, you're talking to the general directly, you know, at my level and you would have got your butt chewed. And the colonels I worked for, it's like, you know, no, no problem at all. So complete trust in me. So they knew that I was trying my darndest to, uh, to make sure I was always doing the right thing. And they had no issue with it whatsoever. So they would enable me and then get out of the way. And that's, uh, I think, uh, a really good leader that does that. Get your people trained, get them to the level they need, get them uh, the tools they need, and then get out of their way and let them do their job. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be a subject? Threat. You're at your best when you are doing what? Solving problems. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you like to impart? Oh, that's easy. Uh, try hard, do your best, and have fun. That's what I tell my grandkids all the time. 
Now, if that was the easy one, this may be the hard one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he's letting you through the gates? You were a good person. Okay, you did find that a lot easier than I was expecting. Um, <laughs> but perfect, Tony. Look, I've really appreciated you know you taking the time for us uh, to hear your views and, and listen to how you have built your career to where it is today. Um, but where can people find you know you and you know maybe some of your speeches or writing that they can also uh, read and listen to? So they can find me at uh, I'm an odd one because my name is William Cole and Tony is a nickname. So they'll find William Tony Cole on LinkedIn. Easy to find. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm at no hacking. So, and that's uh, not I N G it's no hack. And then the letter N no hacking. So, uh, and that's where you can find me. I do a lot of blogs on uh, ativo networks.com as well. That's not the DVR ativo. I have to enunciate, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of stuff on YouTube and in other places as well. So uh, I've done a, a lot of TV shows and stuff like that as well. So always great fun to get to, to talk about, you know, uh, our industry and how we can make it better. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.